Well, good morning, New Day. So good to see you guys. Thanks so much for coming out. I'm so glad that you're here. A big thank you to everyone who's tuned in online. I'm also glad that you are with us. However you're joining us, it's just so great to be together. If you're new, right now as a church, we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been taking it one section at a time, and that's brought us to the section that we're covering today, which is Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, where Jesus teaches us a really important lesson concerning kingdom greatness. That is what it means to be great by heaven standards as compared to earth's. Friends, if you think about it for just even a short minute, you'll quickly realize that whether or not something is great is 100% determined by whatever standards are being used to evaluate the greatness. I'll give you a for instance. Here at New Day, I'm kind of a stickler for time. When I was in college, I did a lot of reading on time, and I just sort of adopted that mentality that uh, lost health can be recovered, lost money can be regained, but lost time, once it's gone, it is gone forever. And so I was taught to waste time is to waste your life, and I'm a pretty intentional person, and so I've just always been a stickler about time. So tomorrow, at our 9 a.m. staff meeting, all the staff will show up at the latest 8.55 a.m. Because I got them trained on five minutes early, right on time. (laughs) At New Day, you can't come past that 8.55 a.m. mark without, you know, just being pulled aside maybe for a little bit of coaching on the importance of punctuality. We don't want the meeting to start at nine and then someone remembers, oh, I need to grab my laptop or I need to use the restroom or whatever might come up. You show up a little bit early, you have that buffer, you have that margin. So all this to say at New Day, to be a great employee, you have to come to meetings at least five minutes early. And many come 15 minutes early, not wanting to be, uh, less than five minutes early. And so that's kind of just how it goes here. Now, I have pastor friends that apparently didn't read the same material I read in college or whatever the case might be. And just, you know, punctuality, time, it's just not something that's valued uh, quite as much. And that's fine. We're all wired different and that's by God's design. But at their church, you might show up to that same 9 a.m. meeting. And by that pastor's standards, as long as you're not more then five minutes late, you could be considered to be doing a great job and you would get the applause of your pastor. I love this staff member. They never come more than five minutes late. Aren't they great? (laughs) At New Day, if you come at 8.57 a.m., even though the meeting hasn't started at 9 a.m., I'm like, we have a serious problem, you know? (laughs) And then this other pastor by their standard, isn't this a great staff member? Aren't they wonderful, you know? So what determines greatness? What determines if someone is a great staff member or a staff member who might need a little bit of coaching in that area? Well, it's 100% determined by the standard that's being used to evaluate the greatness. I'll give you one other simple illustration. Uh, I know some pastors who evaluate whether or not they did a good job with the sermon by whether or not they got positive feedback after the message. If everyone in the hallway gave them a high five, gave them a slap on the rush, you know, on the tush, hey, great job, you did awesome. Don't do that to me, please. I'd appreciate it. Um, 
they say, man, I just killed it today. Conversely, if nobody says anything to them in the hallway, and as they walk by, everyone who just attended is looking up and looking around, and then they kind of being self-conscious turn to their spouse and say, honey, how did I do today? And she quickly changes the subject. They go, oh man, based on the feedback or lack thereof, I, I must not have crushed it today. I personally don't go by that standard. That is not my personal standard for what makes a, a sermon great or not. To me, the goal of preaching is to communicate God's word to God's people, to pass along to God's people the message that he intended to communicate through a particular section of scripture. And if I feel I have done that and done that well, to me, it's a great sermon. Not because of how it's delivered, but because the people of God heard the word of the Lord. So just like we asked, what makes a great staff member? It depends on whose standards you're using. In the same way, what makes a great sermon? I don't know. It depends on what standard you're using. I bring this up because one day, each of us will die. Either the Lord will return and rapture us to heaven, or we will end our time here on earth and we will face death. And the moment we enter into eternity, our life is going to be evaluated by at least two different parties, by heaven and by earth. Now, it's the disciple of Jesus's aim and goal to live in such a way that when he stands before his maker to give an account for his life, which the apostle Paul makes clear that each of us will do, it is the disciple of Jesus who desires to hear from his Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. But here's the deal. We will never ever hear those words if we live our life trying to be great by the standard set by the kingdom of this earth. If we are to ever hear those words, great job. You weren't a great staff member. It's not about a great sermon, but you were a great disciple of Jesus. If we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. If we want to be viewed uh, as having been great in how we lived our life by God's standards, we have to learn what it means to be great uh, by God's standard. And that, fortunately for us, is exactly what we're going to learn to do today in Matthew chapter 18, verses one to four. We're going to see three things in our text today. Uh, number one, the investigation. Number two, the illustration. And number three, the illumination. And we're going to begin, number one, with the investigation. The investigation. We see this in verse one. Take a look. In verse 1, we read, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I don't know about you, but that strikes me as an odd question to ask in general. And it strikes me as an even odder question to ask to Jesus in particular. Hey, Jesus, which one of us is the greatest in your eyes? Tell us. I was like, why did they ask that? It's a weird question. And so I began studying the immediate context to see if I could find an answer. And as I went back as far as chapter 16, I realized that this question comes on the tail end of the Apostle Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, 
the Messiah, the son of the living God. And in the minds of the disciples, when Messiah came, he would overthrow the kingdoms of earth and he would establish his own worldwide kingdom. So when Peter said, Jesus, you're the Messiah, and Jesus said, Peter, you have it spot on, all the disciples thought the kingdom is just around the corner. And they began vying for the top positions within the kingdom. They all said, I want to be top dog. It's only a few chapters later that um, some of the disciples' mom come to Jesus and say, when you begin ruling over your kingdom, can my son sit at your right and your left? Everyone wanted a top spot in Jesus' administration. A worldwide kingdom, do you know the kind of power and authority and influence and status and rank and wealth, not to mention that would come with such a position? And they all began fighting for that position. Now, in chapter 17, Jesus chose of the 12, Peter, James, and John to ascend Mount Moran with him to experience the transfiguration that we just covered a couple weeks ago. And so, among the 12, it maybe became rumored that Jesus has already chosen who his top officials will be in his new government that's going to have influence over the world. Oh, it's Peter, James, and John. Maybe Peter, James, and John kind of march down that mountain going, hey, 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 I know who Jesus has chosen to be top in his kingdom. I mean, we've been talking about it for months now, but I'm pretty sure that our journey up the mountain has settled the matter once and for all. And of course, the other disciples chime in and say, are you kidding me? I know he brought you up the mountain, but here's how he used me. And here's why I'm the greatest. And they just argued with each other to the point that the issue couldn't be settled by them. So they decided to bring the issue to Jesus so that he could tell them once and for all, which one of them was going to get a top spot in Jesus's administration. So friends, that's the investigation where the disciples kind of dig in and uh, petition Jesus to let him in on the secret, who is going to be greatest in your kingdom? Now that we've seen the investigation, let's note together the second thing we see in our text, and we'll call this the illustration. After the investigation comes the illustration. We see this in verses 2 to 3. Take a look with me, would you? And calling to him a child, Jesus put the child in the midst of them, meaning the 12 disciples, and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, like this child right here, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here the disciples are asking Jesus which one of them is going to have the top position in Jesus' uh, government. And Jesus' response is, you are not only not a contender for a top position within my kingdom, you're hardly a contender to even be a citizen in my kingdom because of the way you're acting. So you need to turn and you need to become like this child. Now, here's the deal. We know from the broader context of Matthew that anytime Jesus was in the town of Capernaum, which is where he is now, he stayed typically in the Apostle Peter's house. So here he is in the Apostle Peter's house, and he calls a child to himself. So who's he calling to himself? It's one of Peter's kids. Now, the Greek word here used for child is a very specific word. It's pation. 
And that refers to a very young child, and it can even be uh, used to refer to an infant. But we know here that this child is a toddler, around one or two years old, because when Jesus called the child to himself, the child came to Jesus. Now, it's interesting, we know from the other Gospels who record this same event that the child must have began feeling self-conscious to be called to stand in the center of all these 12 disciples, all these grown men, bearded grown men, and then they just, you know, so Jesus picks up the child and he's holding him in his arms. And he says, hey guys, talking to me about being great in the kingdom, I got an illustration for you of what you need to be like. You need to be more like this child. And there he is holding a one or two-year-old a little toddler. What Jesus is saying is this. Do you think this toddler right now is scheming how to, you know, rise to power? Do you think this child is like sizing everyone up in the room going, which of us is the greatest? It's probably me. No, children don't concern themselves with such things. And Jesus's message to his disciples is this, and neither should you. Now understand at the forefront of this message, Jesus here is not condemning ambition. He's not condemning success. What he is saying is that this should not be the driving motivator for life for the disciple of Jesus. Because friends, all those things I just mentioned, rank and power and status, these are the determiners for success, for greatness, according to the standards of the kingdom of earth. And the disciple of Jesus ought not to be trying to achieve greatness by the standards of the kingdom of earth. No, he or she ought to be trying to achieve greatness by the standards of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, you got to become more like this child. The child is humble in that he's unconcerned about status and rank and power. And you likewise need to adopt such a childlike humility. So this is a rebuke, understand. Jesus says, stop acting like that, turn, and begin acting like this little child. Okay, this leads us to the third thing we see in our text. Now that we've seen the investigation and the illustration, let's thirdly and lastly note the illumination. Look with me at verse four, please. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So here, Jesus now begins to shine some light on or illuminate for them the answer to their question. I want you to note with me that in our last point, Jesus didn't answer their question, did he? They were like, hey, Jesus, which of us is gonna be top dog in your kingdom? And he's like, top dog? You're not a contender for a top position in my kingdom. You're barely a contender to be a citizen. So you need to turn Stop being obsessed with this and start being obsessed with this. And if you don't, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But now, having brought the correction, having brought the coaching, having given this loving rebuke to turn them from a path that would lead to them missing out on the kingdom, Jesus now illumines for them. He illuminates for them. He shines some light on the answer to the original question they asked, which was, Jesus, who's going to be greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus says to them, in essence, it's not the one who's obsessed with being in power that's going to be in a high position of influence and authority in my kingdom. It is not the one who's obsessed with having a legion of servants to wait on them hand and foot to fulfill their every whim. 
He says, no, the top positions in my eternal kingdom is going to be reserved for those who with childlike humility dedicate their lives to serving others. And what Jesus is teaching here is the exact same thing he teaches in chapter 20. Let's skip ahead a little bit in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 20, picking up in verse 25, Jesus said this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, meaning lord it over the people they rule. So those on the kingdom of earth, the ungodly, uh, worldly, corrupt uh, system of leadership that we find in the world, the leaders, they lord it over the people that they rule. And those who are great, great in the eyes of this world, they exercise authority over the people they rule. You do this and you do that and you take care of this. Verse 26, Jesus says, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you in my kingdom, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, y'all are arguing over which one of you is number one. You want to be first? Well, then be everybody else's slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here, Jesus shed some light on kingdom leadership as compared to secular ungodly leadership that we see in the world. In the world, all too often, power and authority are exercised for the benefit of the one in power. Even as Solomon said a few years back when we were doing our study through the book of Ecclesiastes, he said, oh, even the king milks the land for his own profit. And that's typical of ungodly, secular, worldly leadership. Oh, being great's about getting you to benefit me. But Jesus says, let me take leadership and give you a new paradigm. Kingdom leadership takes power and authority and uses it for the benefit of those under his leadership. And this is why Jesus refused to take the seat of honor at social gatherings and why Jesus said, no, I'm going to go ahead and wash your feet since there's no servant around to do this menial task for us. I'll do it. Because he knew that being in leadership in the kingdom, it's not about getting everyone else to serve you. It's about you serving everybody else. It's not about privilege, getting the best seats at the social gatherings. It's about being willing to give it up to someone else. Kingdom leadership, it's not about privilege. It's about responsibility. It's not about getting the best seat. It's about giving it up. It's not about having everyone else serve you. It's about you serving everyone else. And Jesus says it's only people who live like this that will be eligible for the greater positions in my kingdom. And with that, we've now worked our way through Matthew chapter 18, verses one to four. And now that we hopefully understand what it means a little better than when we walked in, now we've got to shift gears and turn our attention to this all important question. What is God calling us to do now in light of what he has said? Here's your next fill in the blank if you're still taking notes. 
this text informs us that heaven measures greatness different than earth. And it calls us to decide which standard we'll live for. I'm going to say it one more time. The text informs us that heaven measures greatness different than earth. And it calls upon us to decide which standard we'll live for. So each of us has to decide by whose standard do we want to be considered great by? Heavens or earth's? Now, friends, concerning greatness in the kingdom of earth, how do you become great in the kingdom of earth? Well, the more money you make, the greater you are. The more status symbols that you're able to acquire, the greater you are. The higher you climb the corporate ladder, the greater you are. The more people you have serving you, the greater you are. That is greatness in a nutshell, according to the standard of the kingdom of earth. And sadly, tragically even, most people, including most Christians, spend their whole life chasing these things or being envious or jealous or covetousness of those who have obtained them, the super minority who have obtained them. Now, just to be clear, having wealth, is that wrong? Good grief. Read 1 Timothy 6. Absolutely not. Is it wrong to use some of your wealth, if you have it, to buy some things that you enjoy, even if those things happen to be the status symbols of our culture? No, that's not wrong. Is it wrong to climb the corporate ladder? I mean, this is weird to say it, but from a corporate standpoint, uh, I'm CEO of New Day Church. I certainly hope it's not wrong to climb the ladder, so to speak. No, it's not wrong to do well at work. It's not wrong to earn money. It's not wrong to buy things with the money that you have. First Timothy 6 says God gave us these things so that we can enjoy and so that we can be a blessing to others. We have someone in our church who God has blessed greatly. And you know what? They just opened up their home to bless the students of our youth group so that they could have a pool party. We can use wealth. So it's not wrong in and of itself. What Jesus is saying though in our passage is this. These things and the achievement of these things can never be the driving force of our life for the disciple of Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then everything else can come into place. So these things are not wrong in and of themselves. They just become wrong when they become the driving force of our life. It would be wrong because the driving force of the disciple of Jesus ought to be to achieve greatness by God's standards, not by earth's. Now, in comparison to greatness in the kingdom of earth, we have greatness within the kingdom of heaven. And throughout Matthew's gospel, if you've been paying attention, Jesus has been showing us systematically here and there how to be great by God's standards. And we're going to go ahead and review the things that Jesus has taught us so far. So how do we be great by God's standards? How do we be great by the standards of heaven? Well, number one, God says we are great when we are faithful to his word. When we are faithful, meaning obedient to his word. Back in Matthew 5, Jesus said this, uh, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Here, Jesus lets us know that in his eternal kingdom that God the Father has appointed him to rule over forever, we, you and I, will be assigned roles and responsibilities. Just as earth has its government, so does heaven. And those who will be great, meaning those who will fill the positions of influence and importance in the kingdom of heaven, will be those who were faithfully obedient to God's word here on earth. So obedience determines greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, God considers us great not only when we're faithful to his word, but also when we play our part in his plan of redemption. That's how God determines greatness. When we play our part in his plan of redemption, God says there is one great person. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said of John the Baptist, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John. And the question begs, what in the world was it that made John the Baptist so great? And friends, the answer is really quite simple. John was great in the eyes of heaven because he stepped up and played the part that God had assigned for him to play here on the earth. God had a plan of redemption and John the Baptist had a role to play in God's plan and John was fearless and faithful in fulfilling the role that he had been assigned. Jesus came. And John was appointed to serve as the herald of the king. Back in ancient times, a herald would enter a town or a village or a city and he would say, the king is coming, the king is coming. And that's in a nutshell what John the Baptist did for Jesus. Israel, the king is coming. In fact, the king is, <coughs> the king is here. He's here, he's arrived. And because he was fearless and faithful, in fulfilling the part that God had for him to play in his plan of redemption, God considered John to be great. Well, can I encourage you with something today? God, likewise, when we die, will evaluate our life by how faithful we were to using our life to advance his purposes on the earth. God's going to say, I had a plan of redemption and just like the, uh, John the Baptist played his part, I want to evaluate and see if this person played their part and if this person played their part. I assign this person a task and this one a task and I want to see how faithful and fearless they were. Now here's the deal, friends. You and I, we live in the church age. All of us have been assigned the exact same task. Now that Jesus has died on the cross, taking upon himself the penalty for sin that you and I deserve, setting us free from the penalty for sin. Now, every one of us who live in what we call the church age, it's our job to proclaim to the world the glorious news that God by his mercy and in his love has provided a way of escape from the penalty for sin, which is death. And God's looking to see how fearless are you? How faithful are you? and sharing this good news with the world. So friends, when you and I get to the end of our life, he's not gonna check how full our 401k was. He's not gonna see how big our home was. He's not gonna check, see how nice the car we drove was. He's not gonna evaluate the wardrobe we have or don't have to determine our greatness. God is gonna look at, hey, I gave you time. I gave you talent. I gave you treasure. How did you invest it to help fulfill 
my plan of redemption on this earth? How did you use it to help other people come to know Jesus? And that is how he's going to determine greatness. Okay, number three. Thirdly, God considers us great when we live a life of service. Can we say that out loud together? God considers us great when we live a life of service. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus told his disciples this in verse 26. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Now, friends, we are always to be striving to be servants of God on this earth. We ought to try to be servants in our church, in our home, and at our work. And the way to be a servant is this. Everywhere you go, every environment you're in, you should be asking this question. What is the need here? And then if you're able to do so, go ahead and meet that need on Christ's behalf. Be Jesus with skin on. Jesus looked around and he saw the stinky feet of the disciples and he said, what is the need here? And he washed the disciples' feet. And that's what we're called to do. Follow in Jesus' example. Everywhere we go, what's the need here? And if I'm able to do it, even if it's something that might be considered to be below my station, I'm going to do it anyway. Because I'm not living to be great by the standards of the kingdom of earth. I'm living to be great by the standards of the kingdom of heaven. And so we take the towel like Jesus and we serve. First, seek to be a servant at church. Look around when you come here and say, what is the need? As you look around, you might see a bunch of orange t-shirts. And that represents the people who are leaving here to go to Agawam to help start a new location so that we can preach the gospel to more people. And the people who have the orange shirts on that are leaving here the orange shirt means they currently serve here in Enfield and the role that they have here in Enfield needs to be replaced by someone who is going to continue attending church here in Enfield. So what's the need? How can I meet it? For those of you who attend online, you say, what's the need? I'll tell you right now. I need you to attend in person once a month, either here in Enfield or in Agawam. Why? because there are more serving opportunities attending in person than there are online. I'm not downplaying online. There's plenty of serving opportunities online. If you don't have one, ask one of the hosts right now, uh, how can I serve while attending online? But if you're not able to fill a position, then I want to challenge you. Begin attending one time a month in person here in Enfield or in Agawam once we launch that location, Lord willing, later this fall. And that will just be a great way to meet a practical need. So number one, be a servant in your church. Number two, once you find yourself serving in the church, now add to that being a servant in your home. For those of you who are uh, children in the home, teenagers maybe, you can ask this same question, what is the need and how can I meet it? You can serve God by helping, taking out the trash, Sweeping the floor, dusting the furniture, cleaning the bathroom, helping with meal prep, setting the table, cleaning up afterwards, watering the plants, mowing the lawn, running a load of laundry, folding the laundry when it's done. And if you're old enough to drive, by running errands. If you, like Jesus, 
In every environment you're in, say, what is the need here? And how can I meet it? You will live a life of service. Likewise, mom and dad, you're to serve your children and you're also to serve each other. And we can do this. We can serve each other uh, as husband and wife by being a listening ear. We can serve each other by being a helping hand. We can even serve each other by making ourselves available to meet our spouse's need for intimacy. Friends, the options are near limitless, but we are called not just to be a servant in the church, we're called to be a servant in the home. Now, once our life is characterized by being a servant in the church and being a servant in our home, then we ought to set our sights on adding to that being a servant at work. And of course, this never means just doing what's in your job description. Friends, when you do the bare minimum, you're a slave. When you go above and beyond what's required, you become a servant. And God hasn't called us to be slaves. He's called us to be servants. He's called us to go above and beyond. In fact, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, where Jesus says this. Hey, if someone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two. In other words, go above and beyond what's expected. Serve. Say, how do I do it? It's the same way we do it at church. It's the same way we do it at home. Every environment in which you are, you say this, what is the need here? And if it's within your ability to meet the need, you go ahead and meet that need on Christ's behalf. Be Jesus with skin on. All right, moving on to our fourth and final application point. God considers us great, fourthly and finally, when we sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. When we sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. In Matthew 19, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the time when he sits on his glorious throne. So he's talking about the time when his kingdom is realized. The time when he overthrows the kingdoms of earth and establishes a kingdom of his own and begins ruling over it as king of kings and lord of lords. And here's what Jesus says about that time. He says, everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or property for my sake, in other words, for the sake of the gospel, will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now here on earth will be the least important then in the kingdom. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then, meaning in the kingdom. Now, friends, can I point something out to you? This took me a long time to get this in my studies, but... but Jesus here is speaking to believers. Whether you're least in the kingdom or greatest in the kingdom, guess what you're in? The kingdom, right? So what this lets us know is that many disciples of Jesus are not living according to the standards of greatness of the kingdom of heaven. No, many disciples of Jesus have bought into the way in which culture has led us, bought into the way in which every commercial on TV has steered us to achieve greatness by the standards of the kingdom of earth. And Jesus says, hey, when the kingdom is inaugurated, 
Many who appear important now, many Christians who, who look and appear like they have arrived and been successful, they're going to be the least important. They'll be saved. They'll be in the kingdom. Praise God for that. And they will have no significant role of leadership or responsibility or influence. Why? Because they chose to be great according to the standards of earth. Jesus says, conversely, there's going to be people who on earth didn't appear to be great because they didn't have a flock of servants waiting on them. They went around waiting on everyone else at their church, in their home, at their work. They went around saying, what is the need here? And how can I meet it? And friends, doing that is just not valued uh, at large by the culture in which we live. And Jesus said, oh, that person who was kind of despised and looked down on and didn't appear to be much on earth, ooh, that person is going to be top dog in my kingdom. That person's going to be top dog in my kingdom. That's the kind of person I want to elevate into a position of authority and influence in my kingdom. It's the one who is the servant. Now, friends, if you feel bad right now because you're like, you know, I kind of been chasing after greatness according to the standards of earth. I haven't even thought about being great according to the standards of the kingdom of heaven. I'm just feeling really bad right now. Can I say this to you to encourage you? Join the club. Jesus' disciples received the rebuke 2,000 years ago, and you and I are just receiving it today. Many Christians are not living to be great in God's eyes. They're living to be great in the eyes of the world. Many a young person is not so much focused on how many other people can I serve, might be more focused on how many followers can I get on social media. That's not wrong in and of itself. I'm just saying it shouldn't be the driving force of our life. Jesus would say to us exactly what he said to his disciples 2,000 years ago. Take a look, Matthew 18, verse 3. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, a one-year-old, a two-year-old, they are not thinking about how to amass wealth they're not thinking about how to climb the corporate ladder. They're not sizing themselves up in every situation to establish who, you know, if they're greater than everyone else in the room. Young, young children do not concern themselves with such things. And Jesus's message to us today is neither should we. I hope I've been clear in saying these things are not wrong in and of themselves. They just should not be the driving force of our life if we are truly disciples of Jesus. We, true disciples of Jesus, ought to be driven by desiring to be great by God's standards, not by earth's. So God help us. Let me end with where I began. What determines if a staff member is great? I don't know. Depends on what standard you're using. What determines if a sermon's great? I don't know. Totally depends on what standard you're using to evaluate it, right? What determines if you and I die? And it's said of us that our life was great. Again, I don't know. 
It 100% depends on what standard you're using to evaluate. Earth's or heaven's. God gave us Matthew 18 verses 1 to 4 so that we would know how to be great according to the standards of the kingdom of heaven. And if that's the desire of your heart, then I want to invite you to join me as we end our time together in prayer. Everyone online, everyone in person, would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? And if you'd like to, maybe you'd pray along with me. Heavenly Father, uh, it's easy to lose focus on what's truly important in life and to lose focus on what I should and shouldn't be living for. So, so Father, I thank you for the institution called church that you gave to us, which is to be our weekly reminder of what is and is not important in this life according to you. Today, I commit to making the turn that you told your disciples to make. You told them to turn from being obsessed with what's important on earth to being obsessed instead with what's important to heaven. And God, with your help, that's the same turn I commit to make today. I don't know if I'll die today, tomorrow, a decade from now, four decades from now, five decades from now, I don't know. But God, when the day comes, and I know it's coming, when it comes and my life's evaluated, I want it to be said that I was great by heaven's standards. So God, I pray for your help to live accordingly. Help me to live now in a way that will achieve that God-honoring end. I can't do it on my own, so I humble myself and I ask for your help. And I ask in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you and we hope to see you again real soon.